Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today, Pastor Dave Johnson will bring a message of hope through our series, Moses Faithful Servant. We're excited to share another powerful episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. To the message this morning, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Phil, would you join me up on stage? You're bringing your laptop. Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) Give a big round of applause for Phil Davis. Oh, I see what you got going Thank you. There. Yeah, I've yeah. got my presentation. The thing is, my computer is dying. I need to replace it. Mm. So this is supposed to detach, and I'm supposed to be cool like you. Oh. See, but I'm not cool like you. So this That is... iPad's like the, from the beginning of iPads. It's like a trillion yeah, years old. And yeah. I have an so, iPad mini. Yeah, okay. See, well, we should I, talk I still to them. Can't, I still yeah. can't compete. Well, I wanted to introduce you to Phil because he is a missionary, but it's not like you might be thinking, like he, li- he you might be thinking, oh, that means he lives in a hut on the other side of the world and, you know, translates the Bible or, you know, to indigenous people or something like that. But Phil is a very different kind of missionary. So Phil, I was just going to stop talking for a second and let you take over for five, 60 second minutes. We serve at Asia Pacific Nazarene Theological Seminary. Now, some of you, that won't mean anything. For others, it was, what are we whistling and sending people to Nazarene Seminary? The reason that we work at the Nazarene Seminary is that we're providing a world-class education at an affordable cost that Asians can, uh, can, can, can do on the other side of the world. So I tell my students that if you come to our house in North Carolina, where we will retire someday, you will go to the ends of the earth. Because if you do Google, you find out that from North Carolina going to Manila is not quite the end of the earth, but you can see it from where we live. Okay, so we have gone to the ends of the earth. Um, Next slide. The pictures that you see here uh, are pictures that I took. So these are people that we know, people we've ministered to. I didn't get any of this off of Google. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This lady is uh, in Kalamio, Myanmar. Some of you will know that as Burma, and um, she's part of the Wesleyan Church. God loves people. God loves people in California and people from the other side of the world. He wants us all standing before his throne in heaven someday. Next slide. This is a picture that I took in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Uh, I can't tell you why I was there, but I was in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. On an evening walking out in Asia, you see this all over the place. Thousands and thousands of people. Becky and I believe God wants to redeem the world today. God keeps calling some Christians to be pastors and teachers. I wonder, is there anyone in the congregation today that the Lord is touching you and saying, I want you to serve as a pastor or a teacher? If so, Pastor Dave will talk to you. I'll talk to you. But he calls some Christians to be pastors and teachers. We long to see cultures transformed and minds open to the gospel of Christ. Together with God's help, we believe we can leave a mark on eternity. 
we have a program designed to develop scholars and teachers. And my question for you this morning, as a church and individuals, are you interested in being part of that? Next slide. What is our purpose? Well, we have a God-sized task. We want to see many Asians win people for Christ, build churches, and pass the faith on to people on the other side of the world. I took this um, picture in a country I can't tell you about, but I can tell you this, that that was a sidewalk, and I could have looked two, two and a half miles out into the distance, and you would have seen that number of people streaming out of this train station. Sixty percent of the world's population lives in Asia. Okay, so let's, let's take the church, and not here in the middle, but let's go right about over here. You are all in Asia. This is the rest of the world. In my little representation, America might be the first two rows here. That's us. Asia is 60% of the world. Imagine what will happen when Christianity is firmly planted there. We believe this is a God-sized task, but with God, all things are possible. Next slide. Four in ten people have no access to the gospel in the world. So I was at a meeting in Athens, Greece, and they brought up this map. Now the Philippines, we're not good at geography in the United States. Uh, actually, around the world, people aren't good at geography. <laughs> it's okay. Um, the Philippines would be over on the right-hand side of that map, but if you know your geography at all, you'll see the Muslim world, you'll see India, and you'll see Asia. All those dots are people who have no access to the gospel. Everywhere else that you see on the map, they have access. Four in ten people around the world do not have access to the gospel. Most of these people live in what missiologists call the 1040 window. As you can see from this map, most of these unreached people live in the Muslim Asian world. We must train evangelist pastors and teachers who will reach these people. The truth is because of the history of colonialization, most people from the West will not be able to speak into these people's lives. Uh, I have a friend uh, in India, and he told me that when the missions, missionaries come, they are told to sit and be quiet and not say anything. Because of the history and the culture, they need to earn the respect to be able to say anything. We need to train Asians. They don't have that hurdle. Next slide. This is uh, Pastor Nino. I did not take this picture. This one came off of Facebook. Um, Pastor Nino leads a multi-site church in Japan. Emmanuel Church is composed of eight congregations. The highlight of their ministry is a Japanese church they planted inside a Filipino church. So as a Filipino, he went to Japan, started a church for Filipinos, started to gather Japanese. This Japanese, he, so he planted a Japanese church inside a Filipino church, and now that church is pastored by three Japanese pastors. Pastor Nino says that our vision is to make Christ-like disciples today who will make Christ-like disciples tomorrow. They've invested in their Japanese-speaking children, believing that God will use these kids to reach the Japanese with the gospel of Christ. Now, COVID had a blessing side to it for our seminary. 
and that was that up until that point, the Philippine government would not allow us to do any online education, and then COVID hit. And suddenly, they had to educate all their kids, their primary school kids, their high school kids, their university kids. Everything went online. As a result, Pastor Nino, who had started his Master of Divinity degree 23 years ago, never finished it. He studied from 1998 to 2000, but he didn't finish his degree. Because of the pandemic, he's restarted his studies online. This is one of Becky's students. Pastor Nino says, doing the ministry while studying is hard, but a blessing at the same time. You can apply it immediately, and what I'm learning makes sense all the more. Hopefully, I can finish in 2024 and move on to another level of study. My wife was teaching him, and she thought, 23 years as a pastor, eight congregations, what could she possibly teach him? And he says, I learn everything every week that I can directly put into. This is the opportunity that you have to pour into pastors. Less than 1% of Japanese people are Christians. It is one of the hardest places in the world to reach. And this man has figured out one of the ways to do it. So next slide. We have a bold vision, and that is we want to see Asia become a Christian continent. If you think back to that map, the Muslim world needs to be reached. The Chinese Christians say this. There's 100 million Chinese people who are Christians in underground churches, but China has a population of 1.4 billion people. That means that if we have 100 people in this room, so look around, roughly 100 people, one of them might be a Christian. But they've suffered a lot under a communist country. So what they tell is they tell a story, and it's back to Jerusalem. And I'll end here because time's running out. Back to Jerusalem is this. The gospel started in Jerusalem, went to Europe. From Europe, it went to England. From England, it came to America. The English and the Americans sent missionaries all around the world, Africa, South America, and so on, and they brought it to Asia. But someone has to reach the Muslim world. It has to go all the way around the globe. We know how to suffer. We are willing to martyr and to die for the cause of bringing the gospel and converting the Muslim world. And when we do it, we Chinese are the people who are able to suffer and do this. When we do this, we will have brought the gospel back to Jerusalem, and then the gospel will have filled the earth. Imagine what God can do if he does for Asia what he's already done for Africa. Africa's sending missionaries around the world now. It is a Christian continent. South America is almost predominantly Christian now. The gospel will fill the earth. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Yeah. God bless you. Thank you. Now, what I want to say about Phil is when you think about America and pastors who get called to ministry here, you think, oh, well, you enroll in school. You go get your seminary. You go to seminary. You go three, four years of school. You get your degree, blah, blah, blah. And it's pretty easy to, you know, you 
go get a, find a professor that you're going to study under and all that stuff. But what do you do in countries where the church isn't allowed to exist? What do you do in countries where the gospel is not allowed to be spread? Right here. Okay. In less than one minute, I taught a, pa- a group of pastors, nine pastors. Of those nine pastors, they'd all been imprisoned. They'd all been in trouble with the police. Eight of them had been tortured. One has permanent scars across his face. Paul said, find trustworthy people and entrust the gospel to them so they can teach others. So, it is so easy to get educated in this country. Yep. There are people around the world that are heroes to me hmm. because they won't give up. Amen. So, no, that's great. So, what do you do? The question is, what do you do? Where do you, who goes to teach these people who are Christians being bold for their faith? Who goes to pour into them the deeper knowledge of Christ? And Phil is one of those guys. And every time Phil and I get together and talk, uh, we, we've been friends for many years, and um, every time we get together and talk, we both, we go way too long. Um, so the 60-second minute joke is kind of between he and I because I'm long-winded too. And um, we go, man, this should have been a podcast. We should have recorded this. Well, that's what we're going to do today after the service. Phil is an expert in why things are the way they are culturally today and understanding our world and our culture. He did his dissertation on a guy named Jean-Francois Lyotard, somebody no one knows uh, except for Phil. And uh, this guy is the father of post-modernity. And so the questions that we're going to ask, and I've got a few to start us out, and then we're going to allow you to ask questions. It's going to be after the service. So if you've got a few minutes after the service, uh, we're going to have some snacks brought in. We want to encourage you to stay for about 45 minutes as we talk about why our culture is the way it is and what do we do as a church about this and how do we respond. It's a big topic and a big culture. So, Phil, thank you so much. Can we give one more round of applause for for Phil coming today? Okay. It it has literally been uh, the the month of missionaries because last week there was a brilliant sermon given by my friend James over here on Exodus 19. If you missed that, go back to it because this is going to connect a lot to that message as well. But before we get into that today, I just thought I would talk for a minute about the vows I took when I got married. When I got married, probably like anyone else who's married here, you took vows that are just like this. I, David, take you, Desiree, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. According to God's holy ordinance, I pledge to you my faithfulness. These were our vows, very traditional. Um, and, and I didn't write my own. They're just traditional vows, and I just chose them because that's, we had a couple to choose from, and those were traditional, and we wanted that. Millions and millions of couples have said those exact vows to each other. Um, I've never had a problem honoring my vows, and, and I've just never had a problem with that. My wife's never had a problem with that. And the reality is, we don't, if somebody were to walk up to us and say, what were your vows? We probably would be like, have to scratch our head for a minute and be like, oh yeah, it was um, sickness and health, uh, death. You know, I could look it up. Let me look it up. And it's not like it's immediately, it's not like I can memorize these and give these to you. In fact, I had to print them on my notes to read them to you. Even though I'm a pastor and I've done like 75 weddings, I, I still don't have them all memorized. We don't have these on a list on our wall and be like, those are our vows. 
And every day we look at it, we don't look at them as like a checklist. We're like, okay, um, we make sure these are the rules. This is what we've got to do. It's something that because we love each other, because we're in covenant together, it's something that is just easy to live by. Marriages get in trouble when you have to keep score. Marriages get in trouble when you treat your vows like a behavioral contract, a behavioral modifying contract. Like, hey, you said you were going to do this, and you haven't done it. What about that have and hold part? That hasn't happened lately. Like two of you got that joke. <laughs> what about like, I'm sick. You know, it's like, it's obviously ridiculous to treat your vows like a checklist. Like, like it's just, we're checking this off. Okay, we did this, we did this, we did this. Because if you've been married for a long time, you might not even remember the words that you said on your vows, but you live by them every single day. How do we get to that point? That's an important point to get to in following Jesus, too. Because we might not remember every single word of the Bible. We might not remember every single one of the Ten Commandments. But how do we get to the point where we live by them every single day? See, this is the point. This is the point James made last week, too. The whole idea is that as God brings his people out of Egypt, he needs to forge a brand new people group. And the way he does that is he brings them up to his mountain. And the best analogy that scholars and that people have given is that this is what's going to happen today. We're looking at with the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, by the way, feel free to open there, is wedding vows. They're marriage vows between God and and his people. It's the best analogy. And the idea surely is not necessarily to, to write all these vows on your hand and be like, okay, yep, all right, didn't murder today. We're, we're all good, you know? It's to live by them without even noticing. It's to follow and honor God without even realizing that you're doing it. See, sometimes we like to treat our relationship with God like a list of rules, and like a behavior-modifying scheme. But this isn't what God is calling us to do. There's no freedom in that. In fact, there's only bondage in that. We could take religion, we could take Jesus, and, and, and make it this rule-following scheme, and all of a sudden the legalism heaps up on us, and it becomes so burdensome that we're like, I just don't want any part of this life anymore. The idea is that God wants to remake your heart and write his laws on your heart. So that following the God's way is just a part of your natural being, of who you are. Because God made you in his image, and the most natural thing to do is to respond to your maker in living his way, in the way that he made possible. So this is, I just want to talk about the Ten Commandments as the rules for a second. We, we should think of these as the ten vows, really, rather than the rules. In fact, the word commandments is a little bit misleading. You'll notice as we read Exodus chapter 20 today, there's no word commandments in there. And in fact, when God says laws, I'm getting ahead of myself now, he doesn't actually even use the word laws or any of that until much later, until the next chapter. These are the vows. These are the vows. And as we get into these today, I mean, they're kind of like rules too, but I want you to think about the difference of rules given out of love versus rules that are intended to manipulate or control. Many of us here are parents. 
when you tell your parent and when you tell your children, when you cross the street, I want you to look both ways. Is that a rule given out of manipulation and control or a rule given out of love? This is a real, this is not rhetorical. None of you know. This is a shocker. Is it a rule given out of love? Yes, it is, because you don't want your child to be flattened by a car. And then when they, when they just run out, every kid does this. They just run out in the middle of the street. I remember, oh my gosh, back living in Southern California, we had a big picture window in our front. My wife and I would sit there, and my daughter, Lucy, said, can I go to the neighbor's house? And we said, yes, you have to cross the street. We'll watch you look both ways. Okay, mom and dad. She runs out to the street. She sees her friend over there, and she just bolts. And we both stand up and go, no! Like, we're about to watch her get hit by a car. And she's done this many times, looking both ways. She just got excited this time and saw her friend. Thankfully, there were no cars coming. But because we love her, we disciplined her for that. We did. Like, you're not allowed to go over there unless you can look both ways. Why? It's not because we enjoy discipline or manipulation or control or anything. It's because we don't want our daughter to die. That's why. We don't want her to get hit by a car because we love her. These are the rules given out of love. And if you think about it, you know, I I grew up and my parents were probably more strict than other parents. I I had stricter rules than other kids. I had a stricter curfew than other kids. And I distinctly remember in my early 20s calling my dad after hanging out with a group of friends in my early 20s and going, wow, thank you for the rules. Because they were given out of love and I could tell the difference at that time in my life. Whereas other people had difficult relationships with their parents because the rules were not given out of love. They were given out of this harshness. Now, the reason why I say all of this is unfortunately many of you have experienced toxic rules where manipulation is involved. Toxic rules that are meant to control you. Toxic rules that are meant to, if you don't do this and you're not going to get my affection. If you don't do this and you're not going to get my love, follow my rules in order to get my love. Many of you have experienced that growing up. And this is just nowhere near. And like, I even hate to talk about the Ten Commandments as rules. But the reason why I'm talking about it this way is because many of you experienced love this way. You only get my love if you follow the rules. And God is kind of the opposite way here. In fact, look, at me, look with me to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Let's pause there. I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Because God loves his people, he heard their cries. Because God loves his people, he rescues them. The first fill-in is this, the Ten Commandments begin with an expression of God's love for his people. As a reminder, I'm your rescuer. You have to understand, what I give to you now comes from love, because I'm your rescuer. This is not meant to manipulate or control you. This is not like, if you don't do these things, I'm not going to love you. Not like the, the way some of you grew up. And some of you view God that way because that's the way your parents were. 
Your parents were like that, and so you're like, man, i got to follow the rules or else God isn't going to love me. i, I got to tie 10% or else God isn't going to love me. i got to show up at church every Sunday or else God isn't going to love me. No. If Christianity to you is a checklist, I want you to take that checklist and bring it to the altar today and say, Lord, take this and write your law on my heart. You love me. I don't want to make this a checklist. It becomes a formula. What God tells us is that everything that follows after this statement, after these first two verses, I am the Lord you God who took you out of Egypt, who brought you up out of slavery. What God is trying to tell you is all these rules or the commandments or the vows are done from a posture of a God who rescues his people and loves them. That's what the posture is coming from. And if you're a parent, just a quick side note here, if you're a parent, I want to encourage you to give rules to your kids out of love. They might hate it at the time, but when they're about 20 or so, they're going to call you and say, thank you. (laughs) That was awesome. Give them rules out of love because you're shaping and growing them. God is saying, I brought you up so you could be my chosen people. So, and last week we looked at, so you could be my royal priesthood. So you could be a people who show all the other nations what it looks like to follow me. This is why I'm bringing you here to my mountain, to share with you, to, to marry you, to, to show these vows with you. In fact, like I said, Moses had words like law available to him, but he doesn't use it. God could have said, this is my law, but he doesn't. In fact, not until the next chapter, chapter 21, verse 1, where he says, these are the laws you were to set before them. Why does God do this? Because in the same way you stood before your spouse and repeated your vows, God calls his people to his mountain and makes a covenant with them. You don't tell your spouse, all right, sweetie, here's the laws. This is what you're going to do. You don't stand up there in front of the pastor and be like, and the pastor is not like, okay, guys, here's the laws. We're going to sign these and, you know, pick a finger and do it in your blood. and We're going to sign these things. That's not the way it works. It's like, do you agree to love each other? Okay, then all this other stuff, sickness and health and, and, and finances and, and fidelity, that's all going to follow if you love each other, if you decide to love each other. In the Hebrew tradition, if someone is rescued, there's a word called hesed, and it defines the relationship. When you're rescued by somebody in the Hebrew world, you're, you're heseded by them, and it's this lasting loyalty and respect that you're supposed to have back to them. So God is just invoking his own tradition here and saying, I am your hesed. I am your rescuer. Now, you have to have this relationship back with me, this loyalty, this lasting respect that you're supposed to give to your rescuer. And this is how we're supposed to view the Ten Commandments. Not as a list how to modify your behavior. Not as a tool to use in your home to beat your children over the head with. Not in any of these things. Because, you know, you could use the Ten Commandments as a way to manipulate people around you. Well, God says this, or you're going to go to hell. You know what I mean? You could use that. But that's not at all what God is using this for. This is a way that we respond to God who rescued us, who rescued us from our slavery. For the Egyptians, it was the slavery of Egypt. For us, it's the slavery of our sin. It's how do we hesed God? How do we respect this God who rescues us? 
So let's get into it right now. Exodus 20, verse 3. And normally I would uh, just read the whole text, but because there's like a list, we're just going to go through them kind of one by one. You shall have no other gods before me. It's kind of obvious, right? Commandment one. And, and I mentioned this before. There's this generic word used for God in the Bible called Elohim. It's a Hebrew word. And it could mean God. It could mean the Lord. It could mean Yahweh. But it also means spiritual being. It also means all the other gods that were at play from the other nations. They were all Elohims. And so what God is doing is acknowledging that like all these nations have other gods. But I am, you shall have none of them before me. I am God. I am the top dog here. I am the one that all those other gods serve. There's no other spiritual being above me. I mean, this is probably why God just didn't say, don't believe any others. So how does this play out in the world today? It means that we call on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we put our life in God. God comes first in our lives not that anything else ever comes second, like, oh, the God of money, the God of sex, the God of power, or anything like that. It's that we don't elevate our desires to the status of, of God's. See, in the Hebrew world at this time, it, you know, we look at it through this American rationalistic sense of like, there is no other gods. It's just God, that's it. But in this Hebrew world, there was this whole spiritual reality of all these other gods. There was Egyptian gods they had just defeated. There was all these other gods. You got to remember, these Hebrew people just grew up in Egypt learning how to serve and worship these other gods. So what he's saying is like, look, I'm the top dog. I'm the one. Follow me. I rescued you. They didn't rescue you. The, the god of Pharaoh held you in brutal captivity. If somebody were to ask me, what's the most important marriage vow? I'd say fidelity to one another, probably. I mean, all the other, they're all important, but fidelity is like the most important. And this is God's fidelity covenant. I am your God. Don't make gods out of anything else. And then let's look at the next one. Chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself. So he's like, now he's like going deeper into what the first commandment is on the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in earth beneath or in waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children or the sins of the parents to be the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So he says, no images, no idols. Now, it needs to be pointed out that you and I, the people that God is speaking to here, are actually already living images of God. Because what were we made in the image of? God. You and I were made in the image of God. And so we make all these other images, and, and, and at least this is what happened in Egyptian culture. They make all these other images, and then they worship them. It's going to happen again with this golden calf, right? They're going to break this commandment. And they worship it. And, and this is clear. Don't make a copy of anything on hev- in heaven or below on earth and, and, and worship that. I mean, people today are into all sorts of weirds. I was in the farmer's market, and there's like crystals and people, you know, nerding out on these crystals and they're healing property. It's a rock, dude. <laughs> there's nothing to that. There is, it is an empty well, okay? 
That's what it is. But people take all these little things and, and they, they elevate it to God-like status. I mean, I don't, like, don't mean to like go off on crystals or anything, but because it, it's literally anything. It's literally worshiping the art rather than the artist. It's really easy to tell if something is an idol in your life. If God were to walk up to you and ask for something that's your most treasured thing, what would he ask for? It could be an idol in your life. Other than my family and, and, and all that stuff, if God were to come to me and be like, you need to stop riding your bike, I'd be like, ooh, maybe riding my bike's an idol. Maybe it is. But I've kind of committed that to him, so I hope it's not an idol. <laughs> really hope it's not. And I'd be like, okay, God, I'll give you this bike. Maybe you give me a better bike? Isn't this a test for Abraham? God made Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these people, and he said, I'm going to make you this great covenant. Don't make your son an idol. Your son is the sign of the promise that I'm going to give you. Don't make him an idol, so go sacrifice him. And in our 21st century, you know, uh, more, this is a very difficult passage to read, but Abraham goes, he takes him over there, and he's going to sacrifice him, and God says, okay, good, he's not an idol. Stop it. I've provided another sacrifice, a substitution for you. Don't make the child an idol. So if everything and everyone, every one of your people and everything that you have, if it belongs to the Lord and God is honored first in all those relationships, then they don't become idols. But if you truly wouldn't give something up, then guess what? This, there's this Hebrew idiom that says that your children will be punished because like you, you hate God. It says, like, those who hate me, I'll punish them and their children from generation to generation. This is Hebrew idiom that's brought into the text because what it's saying is that this love, this idolatry, this materialism, whatever it is, it actually passes down to generations. And actually what it shows is hatred toward God. You might give lip service to God and say, no, 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 I love God. But what your actions are truly showing is that you worship something else. This is what God is saying. Let's keep going or else we're never going to get through these Ten Commandments. Holy cow. Okay, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is one we got to be careful with. Some, many people just think this is about cussing. God says don't cuss. No, it's not. To be in covenant partner with God, we need to be careful not to speak for him. We do this all the time. We do this in really subtle ways. The Lord spoke to me X, Y, Z, and he said that you should do this. Well, now we're using the, the good name of God to manipulate someone else. It's harmful when we do it individually. And Congress does this all the time whenever we have a war. God's on our side. During the Civil War, both sides said God is on our side. And Abraham Lincoln was quoted as saying, I don't know what side God is on, but I just hope I'm on his side. We do this all the time. And we've got to be careful with this, that we don't use God's name as this utilitarian tool to get whatever we want or to say whatever we want. We don't use God as a prop. We've got to be careful with it. 
Many times in my life I've seen politicians talk about war or go to war or something like that and really just say God's on the side of America, God's on the side of this country or that country or, or, or whatever. But if God loves all people, I mean, how do you do that? What, which one, you know, what's right? What's, I don't know. How do you deal with that? This is what's happening when we take God's name in vain, is that we take God's good name and we speak for him. We say, this has got to be true because God. God told me this, you know, and we, we, we manipulate, we use God as utilitarian tool. We weaponize his name for, for our own purposes, so we have to be careful with that. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10 Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blesses the Sabbath day by, and made it holy. The Sabbath is like seven weeks worth of sermons. It's many weeks worth of sermons. The Ten Commandments is ten weeks worth of sermons, okay? But we want to focus on one thing here. I've told you before how the structure of the Bible actually preaches, and, and let me just share this with you. In the beginning, I, I've mentioned before, there's ten words of creation. And not like single words, like ten phrases. God spoke ten times. They call it the ten words. And then there's ten plagues, and they really kind of match up with each other because what those plagues are doing is decreating the creation. God created in ten words, and now he is decreating Egypt as an act of judgment in ten plagues. And now we're going to the ten commandments, and he's creating a new people in ten words. Ten means complete in, in the Hebrew idea, and this is what God is doing. And the way that this lines up is that this, this command to rest on the Sabbath links up, it's like literally the next time the Sabbath is spoken about after Passover. So Passover and, the, and this command to rest actually link up with each other. And so this is a way that scholars have linked and have shown there's so much connection between the ten plagues and Passover and the ten commandments is through this, through this one right here. It's to rest. The Sabbath is the eternal day. It's a day, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, where the Sabbath shows, every day up there, and it's the day began and a day ended. The day began and the day ended. That's the formula, but then you go to the Sabbath, and it just says the day began and the Sabbath, and that was it. The day never ends. It's a picture of your time in eternity with God. It's a reminder in the Ten Commandments, stop all that you're doing, not just to stop work, but to have relationship with me. Have relationship with me. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. And there's this structure in the Bible, creation, decreation, recreation. And that's what's happening with the Ten Commandments, just recreating this people, making you into a new people. The Ten Commandments are the way of life for a person who's rescued by Yahweh. These are the first four commandments. They're all about honoring a God who rescues you. In fact, the next villain is the first four commandments were directly related to honor and the honor and worship that we give to God. That's what the first four commandments are about. The idea is that if we honor the Lord, these last six commandments are actually a no-brainer. 
If our relationship is right with God, then, then we're certainly not going to murder people, right? Well, let's keep going. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. There, it's interesting. There's a linking command. This is the middle command of all the commandments. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord, your God, is giving you. Let me, yeah, amen. As a father, I say amen. <laughs> uh, the next film is this. The command, this. the command in the middle shows us how we move from honoring God to honoring others. Now, parents, you are the first people who are like God to your children in that you feed them, you clothe them, you have all authority in their lives. You are like God to them. You're not God, just so in case any of you needed to hear that, but you're like God to them. So training, training your children to honor you actually helps them down the line in the future when they've got to go off into their own world to, to learn structures of authority in the home, to learn to honor you, and you insisting on it, that they honor you, actually helps them to live in submission and surrender to God when they're older. There's a lot of negative commentary out there um, and the church, of course, needs to address a lot of things like, that are in the church. And we need to rethink youth ministry and children's ministry and all these different things because there, it's just true that, that like, the dropout rate for church is crazy. You know, kids go up to age 18 and they bail. And they bail on their faith. And, and we need to somehow address that. But also, parents, you need to address this too. Because kids need to learn to honor their father and mother in the home first. Because that way when they come to church, when they hear from God, they understand that there's authority and rules and structures. What I'm saying is that training your kids to honor you and respect you and talk politely to you and listen to you, even if they don't like it, sets them up for success later in their lives because you love them. These are the rules that you're giving out of love. Because God has a standard God has a standard, and you can either teach your kids to honor and respect you, and they have to live by your standard, or they can live by their standard, and they're being set up for failure. So the church obviously needs to address this, but parents, we need to address this too. This dropout rate, I wonder if it's due to parenting. We allow our kids maybe a little bit too much freedom in this area where they disrespect us. And it's not like you need to rule with an iron fist. No, that's the opposite of what you have to do. You have to love them into them saying, man, there's nothing I could do but has said my mom and dad. Respect and give them loyalty as well. Just as the people of God are rescued by God, your kids need to see you as this so that as they grow up, they learn to honor God as well. So this is a linking command to honor your father and mother. It's a linking command to take those first four commandments of loving God and honoring God. Now, parents, have your kids honor you. It's the same set system. Set up that same system in your home. And then the, net, the last ones are how do we act and live as priests in, in this world? That's what these last commandments are. The commandments like, you shall not murder. This is verses 13 through 17. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet their, your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
So last week, James talked about how God was forming his people into a kingdom of priests. And, and really, this just, um, and, and they, they kind of blew this, right? The, the Israelites, they blew it. And so it's just the Levites now who are priests. But the point is that if you follow the first four commandments, if you relate rightly to God, if you give your life rightly over to God and love him in return and you don't misuse his name and you don't make other idols, but you, you truly put God at the center of your life, then following the rest of these commands are easy. You don't murder. You, you honor life, even life at its beginnings. You honor life because God is the author of life and you're not. You honor life. You don't commit adultery. You respect your own vows. Just as you have no other gods before you, you honor your spouse. You don't commit adultery. You're faithful in your marriage. See, if you're part of God's covenant people, then out of your relationship with God, you'll be truthful. You will never give false testimony because God is truthful. There's no deceit in God. And you won't lie against your neighbor. See, out of your relationship with God, you would never covet or you would never take what your neighbor has out of love and respect for your neighbor because you know that God has, loves you and has provided for you. See, the point is this, and this is the, the last fill-in, and then we'll, we'll wrap it here. The Ten Commandments are an invitation to be God's new creation people. That's what the Ten Commandments are. And Moses here is not actually in the picture. This whole series has been about Moses, but the reality is, is that this is God speaking directly to his people. And right after this, they're like, Moses, don't have God speak to us anymore. We're sinful people. This hurts to have God's holiness speak before us. This is the invitation of Jesus too. The invitation of Jesus is that he died and gave his life to redeem you of your sin so that you could be born again so that you could have a new start at life, so that you could become a new creation, his new creature, so that he could write his laws on your heart. And so you don't need to keep the Ten Commandments up and go, okay, did I follow the don't murder thing today? So it could be written on your heart so much that you honor and love God and it's a natural outflow out of your relationship with him. That's what this is about. God wants to make new creation people. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. The Ten Commandments seek to take those who were slaves living in Egypt and to make them and give them a new identity. And this is what Jesus wants for you. I want to invite the band up today, right now, because we want to respond to this. And Jeff, I think we're going to do one song if we can, so... You guys figure it out in the back room real fast. Sorry. <laughs> this is what Jesus wants for you. He doesn't want you to be defined by your past of sin. He doesn't want you to be defined by Egypt. He doesn't want you to be defined by what used to define you. He wants to be the definition of your life. He wants to give you a new purpose. He wants to make you new. He doesn't want the sin that had a grip on you to have a grip on you any longer. He wants to make you a new creation. But it starts with the surrender. It starts with giving your life over. It starts with saying, God, I, I've made my life about me. God, I've got all these idols in my life. God, I've got this list of rules in my life. I've got your like, legalism. I, just laying that all down. And saying, Lord, I have got to follow you. I don't want to be defined by my past anymore. I want to renew my vows with you this morning. And honor 
and respect you. God, that's what I want. I think through the Ten Commandments, through Jesus on the cross, through his resurrection, God has a hand extended to his people this morning. And he says, I want to make you into a new creature. I want to make you into a new creation. That hand is extended to you this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you that these quote-unquote rules, these commandments are really this expression of love for your people, are really just a way for us to interact with you. God, help us to lay down our old lives. Help us to lay down that which Egypt has defined in us. Help us to lay down our sin and our past and, and come to you and say, God, renew your covenant with me this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for your son on the cross and his shedding of the blood for us. God, we thank you that your blood covers our sins, that your blood makes us new, and that makes it possible for us to have a direct relationship with you. So Jesus, do your redeeming work here today. If people need to renew their covenant with you, if they need to come to you for the first time, that could happen with a prayer. And we just pray that that would happen here and now. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of REC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.